The art and science of finger prosthetics is advancing rapidly. Yet many people with amputated fingers do not wear a prosthetic. We as healthcare providers may be partially at fault due to our own outdated assumptions of poor outcomes and limited options for finger prosthetics. Today, we'll look at a research article exploring the experiences of people who wear finger prosthetics. Our goal is to help you listen more closely to your own clients and their needs in this area. After we review the article, we'll welcome Haley Van Escobar, who owns a hand therapy private practice in addition to working for a finger prosthetic company. She'll share what she has learned in her work and what OTs need to know about this quickly evolving space. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this topic of finger prosthetics and OT, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT continuing education platform. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to identify indications of a good candidate for a digital prosthetic. Our second learning objective is you will be able to recognize user experience factors that may influence digital prosthetic wearing. So let's begin by looking at this journal article, and then we will bring on Haley to discuss how this research could play out in your practice. The article that we are reviewing today is called User Experiences of Digital Prostheses, in daily functioning in people with an amputation of thumb and finger. This article comes to us from the Journal of Hand Therapy, and it was published in 2022. So the article begins with this big picture introduction to finger prosthetics. Following an amputation, a digital prosthetic can help improve grip, strength, manipulation of objects, and body image. Digital and partial hand amputations appear in many variations, necessitating a unique consideration for each case. Above all, it is critical to know which activities that have been impacted by the amputation are the most important to the individual receiving care. So as part of this intro, the authors really highlight the importance of determining what is important to the individual user. And unfortunately, past research has shown a lack of agreement between users and professionals on the objectives of wearing a prosthetic. Specifically, they point to a research article that showed that upper limb prosthetic users considered function to be the most important objective, followed by comfort in cosmetics. But by contrast, prosthetic professionals considered comfort to be the most important objective. Given these past discrepancies and the variety of options that have been made available in more recent years, it is crucial for professionals to anticipate and consider user experiences in order to achieve the best functional outcomes for each individual. But when you look at the research that's out there, very few studies focus on the use of digital prosthetics, period. 
and none focus specifically on the user's experience of these prosthetics, which is where this new study comes in. So what was the intent of this research? The authors say that the true value of a prosthetic can only be assessed by the user themselves. Thus, detailed knowledge about the user experience is invaluable to any professional's ability to give informed advice about prosthetics. With this in mind, this study aims to shed light on digital prosthetic user experiences with respect to daily functioning. So what were their methods? This study used a qualitative descriptive method with a phenomenological approach. This approach involves studying experiences to gain deeper insights into how people understand those experiences. So for their data collection and analysis, a semi-structured one-to-one interview was used to collect data for the study. These interviews lasted 45 to 60 minutes each and were conducted at a rehab department in the Netherlands between 2017 and 2018. Audio recordings were transcribed, and they were analyzed with the six steps of interpretive phenomenological analysis. Looking at the findings and discussion, a total of four people participated in these interviews. Of these participants, three did not have thumbs, and one was missing their middle and index fingers. Two had amputations due to animal bites, two had amputations due to industrial accidents, and three had worn different types of prosthetics. So three overarching themes were identified from the interviews. The first theme was regaining grip on life. This theme centered on how the prosthetic improved the user's quality of life. It was divided into three sub-themes. The first sub-theme was self-esteem. The prosthetic was an important support in the user's efforts to carry out activities independently, contributing to their self-esteem. For two participants, the prosthetic also positively impacted their body image by making them feel complete. The next sub-theme was recognition and respect. The participants wanted recognition of their loss and suffering as well as respect for making their best efforts. And the third sub-theme is restoring roles and independence. Two participants felt the prosthesis helped them to restore their role in relationships. Three felt the prosthesis was crucial to their ability to perform their work. All participants felt the prosthetic was important to restoring a sense of independence. However, it is important to note that while the prosthetic was supportive in this, the user still perceived their current experience as suboptimal compared to their experience prior to amputation. The second broad theme was load balancing. Past research has shown that musculoskeletal complaints on the contralateral side are common following upper extremity amputations due to an uneven distribution of loads. Participants in this study echoed these findings, reporting that before they started using their prosthetic, the physical overload on their unaffected hand had led to serious complaints. For one participant, this problem almost disappeared after she started using a prosthetic. And on a related note, three participants articulated that the grip enabled by their prosthetic made them feel safer when performing potentially dangerous activities. For example, one participant highlighted being able to grip the railing while carrying groceries up the stairs. And the third broad theme was assessing technical aspects of the prosthetic. This theme from the interview centered on the limitations and benefits of the prosthetic's materials and technical characteristics. All participants started with a silicone prosthetic. These have the benefit of appearing similar to a finger. But silicone prosthetics 
often cannot extend or flex like a finger, which discouraged two participants from using them at work. One participant valued the lifelike appearance of the silicone prosthetics so much that she did not leave the house without it, and she accepted that it needed to be replaced every few years due to the wear on materials. She also avoided contact with substances like chlorine that could damage it. One participant went on to try a passive, non-movable thumb made of stiffer materials than silicone so he could exert more force in his grip. And two participants went on to try an active digital prosthetic. This had the benefit of greater mobility, but it came with limitations in range of motion and exertion of force. It also needed to be protected from moisture. Again, none of the participants felt that their prosthetic completely replaced their lost fingers, and adaptation to either the activity or environment was still often necessary. So headed into the discussion and conclusion, the main finding of this research was that digital prosthetics were perceived as important for people with amputations to perform tasks and participate in activities independently. The prosthetic meant something different to each participant, and this study highlights the importance of identifying the individual requirements each prosthetic must meet, and being aware that the individual's needs may change over time. Okay, that wraps up our review, and this research just raised so many questions for me. What does OT-specific work look like in this area, and what do the rest of us as generalists need to know to help our clients get connected to the right prosthetic. And I have found just the perfect person to talk to, Haley Van Escobar, O-T-R-L-C-H-T-P-M-P. Haley is excited to advance the profession of hand therapy and empower individuals worldwide. With a background as a classically trained pianist and personally recovering from traumatic venous thoracic outlet syndrome, Haley has great empathy for those who work with their hands. With over a decade of clinical experience in upper extremity orthopedics, she has followed innovation and found herself leading a variety of new programs and projects as Naked Prosthetics' first certified hand therapist. She collaborates with a multidisciplinary team to enable individuals to gain function through partial hand prosthetics. Haley's commitment to advancing her field is evident through her contributions to advanced training events and professional publications, including Chapter 18 of the esteemed publication, Hand in the Upper Extremity, 4th Edition. She is honored to serve on the AAHS Education Committee, and recent personal projects include teaching ergonomics for EWU's MOT program, serving on ASHT's education division, and educating Ukrainian clinicians on prosthetics, co-instructing ASHT's hybrid hand therapy review course, and being chosen as a mentor under HTCC's guidelines. Haley eloquently connects the experience of living to the purpose of hand therapy and recently presented on the topic of resilience for ASHT's annual conference. She personally maintains her AOTA-approved provider license to award CEUs to medical professionals and offers innovative courses at RestorePerform.org. Haley's relentless pursuit of excellence makes her a catalyst for positive change in the field and beyond. As a financial disclosure, I do want to highlight, as I mentioned, that Haley does work for Naked Prosthetics, but I think you'll really enjoy hearing how she really gets to bring her clinical judgment to this role. So without further ado, I will patch Haley into this podcast. 
Welcome to the podcast, Haley. It's great to have you. Sarah, it is so much fun to be here, and I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Oh, I'm so excited. I come from a farming community, and I see missing fingers all the time. And it, But I rarely see anyone wearing a prosthetic that I recognize, at least. And historically, I've been like, yeah, that's probably the right choice because a finger prosthetic is a hassle. Um, that was my probably lack of knowledge and maybe thinking 10 or 20 years ago. But I was at an OT conference and just saw like the advances that are happening in this area, which really motivated me to find someone like you and bring you to the podcast. So thanks for being here today to talk about all that. Um, before we get to our big topic, though, I just want to hear how did you start working at a prosthetic company? Um, I think that's a unique role for an OT. What was your path to get there? Absolutely. Um, I am a musician, so I I always start there to say that I began in music deep in the world of performance, uh, piano and organ, and I also was uh, alto section leader. So I was doing things like teaching music, uh, doing weddings and funerals, and just deep in the culture of being a musician, and that was what my undergraduate was in. And while I was actually had just come back from choir camp, I'm a very cool person, um, <laughs> and um, very uh, sadly and traumatically, my mom had a table saw injury. She was a nurse and had been doing a project uh, at the house, and she had a four-digit no-man's-land injury, which is the uh, zone two most difficult flexor tendon injuries, right? And I was there when it happened. So at about 19, I had the most crazy experience taking her to the ER, going back to the sawdust to find what was left and bring it to the ER again, and then being airlifted to a large city. She was working as a nurse. And that started a five-year path of hand therapy, as you can imagine. I think her first surgery was eight hours long, and she had a total of five and I still remember the day when she could go back to starting an IV. It was transformational for her to go through this experience and then be able to go back to her occupation. And so that was my first exposure to OT. And shortly after uh, graduating from music school, I had that moment where I was like, you know, I love helping people and I think I want to be a hand therapist. So that's the short version of how I became an OT hand therapist. And uh, I had amazing mentorship along the way. I found out fairly early that I love starting new programs, which I did not know about myself. And so I had the opportunity to begin a therapy program for a physician-owned group. The surgeon was an incredible mentor, so I was able to develop this program for him. And there were actually seven surgeons total, but I was within the hand therapy wing. And then after a little while, I really wanted to be close to my family. So I uprooted and moved over to a therapist-owned practice where I started a hand program for them. Um, And then we all went through COVID together, right? And I began to, well, I was continuing to work, but we started exploring the virtual side of hand therapy in that context. It was an experience for sure. And shortly after that, Naked Prosthetics advertised for a hand therapist. And I better back up a second. So I have cared for thousands of hand cases at this point. I'm about 12 years in. 
And one of those cases was a farm worker. And I vividly remember this person because he had amputated four digits in, I don't recall the, it was some heavy machinery as it happens. And he was just so quiet and no expression and just not there, you know, and I remember trying to connect with him and I'm helping him through this very early part of healing and going through dressing changes, all these things. And he's just not awake is what it felt like. And we found Naked Prosthetics. I think I had, I think I had seen them at a conference and I introduced this concept to him. I said, hey, what do you think about this? And it was like he, he woke up, like he started speaking. He started talking about being interested in, I, I, you know, I want to know what that means. What does this do? And, uh, and so I got better therapy um, participation, which was my initial goal, probably. <laughs> but that was back in, I think, 2017, which was quite early for Naked Prosthetics. So when I saw them advertising for a hand therapist, I was like, oh, hot dog. That's it. I'm going. <laughs> and, um, and I'm very honored to be their first hand therapist. And I joined when they were still a startup company. I think there were maybe 60 people in the company. And since that time, we've joined Oser, which is a much larger company. So now I have therapist colleagues. I get to work with therapists again. It's wonderful. But working for a prosthetics manufacturer means that I'm helping to develop their protocols. So I have to be very up to date on research. I have to be able to educate. I have to be able to communicate with other therapists, surgeons, case managers, prosthetists in particular. And I also get to work with design engineers. It's a very unique job. So that is how I ended up being the hand therapist for Naked Prosthetics. Hmm. So many parts of that story that I love. And I want to get to hearing more about the logistics of your work. But one question I wanted to ask that came to my mind was, I would think that finger prosthetics are the most common type of prosthetic or that finger injuries are the most common. Like I know so many people missing fingers. Is that true? Like, do you know any information on that? Like before yes, reading this, I would have been like prosthetics, I think of legs or like a more full arm or absolutely. more full hand. Yeah, I I can agree with what you say to say that it is incredibly more common. It happens, I think the recent statistic I heard was 40,000 a year, something in that number in the U.S. So it is occurring. What's interesting for our audience is, are you seeing them? You know, and I think that the old school protocols, and by that I mean stuff from the 60s, did not consider prosthetic intervention for a partial hand amputation. And I think we might get to talk about that more, but that's just an old cultural thing that we still continue with. Um, so they absolutely are common. Um, people have very healthy lives afterwards. You know, you think about a very high level amputation. Many people in the past didn't survive that. Whereas if it's a fingertip amputation, especially with modern medicine, people return to work, they adapt. Um, but that's why we see them in our communities. We'll see them uh, many, many, many years after that uh, the amputation may have occurred. But the actual options have been rare. So I would say in the last five years, we're beginning to see incredible changes 
in the available designs, and naked prosthetics is one of those. But there are other designs out there for this level of amputation. In your work at Naked Prosthetics, do you feel super non-clinical, like you're um, developing protocols or are you interfacing with patients a lot? What is just a little taste of what does the logistics of your current work look like? Yeah, Um, I'm so grateful that I still feel like a clinician uh, because about half of my job is consulting work. It would be the type of therapy I'm doing. So I get I work virtually and I meet with people anywhere that this design is sold. So um, that speaks English. Um, someday, maybe I will be bilingual. But at the, at <laughs> yeah, the moment, yeah. we, need, we need English uh, for me. Um, and so I will be uh, virtual, virtualed in and meet the clinician who is sometimes a therapist, but most often a prosthetist, and then also meet the patient. And I get to f- hear their story but I evaluate what their hand looks like, what their healing course is. If they just had the injury, it's not ready to really interact with a prosthetic yet, prosthesis. So I consult on the situation and I had to learn the designs very well and be able to match them to the person. Uh, Something that this article really emphasized that I love is the emphasis on what does the person wanna do And that's, I think, why I'm successful and why NP has been successful, because we're trying to match people not only to the level of amputation, but to what they actually want to do. So that's that's about half of my job. The other half is involved in projects presenting to therapists. I speak at ASHT. I recently did a webinar for them. Uh, I will be presenting for a clinical group later this week. So uh, very heavy educational um, and outreach focus. You found a really cool job. I found an incredible job. And I work with such amazing people. You put in you put in six people in one room, and it's just incredible, the diverse background. And I get to learn a lot every day. So I am very humbled and honored to be on that team. Yeah, it's very meaningful work. Very much so. As we look at this article... Uh, I loved how it, like you said, was focused on that user experience, um, really putting uh, the client first. Um, What were your impressions of the article since this is kind of what you live and breathe uh, during your work days? Well, I guess my first impression is, yes, more research. Yeah. (laughs) Hear me if you are a student. Please research in this field. Yeah. Um, So... Yes, there is a, just a vast gap in research in uh, upper extremity prosthetics and particularly in partial hand. So I love that this article is here. I really found it very insightful in the way that they ask questions. It's a strong qualitative study. And that speaks to me, certainly, um, I, maybe just as an OT, but as a person, right? Numbers are great. Uh, in the practice of being a therapist, it really is about the experience. So this is a beautiful article in that way. It displays what those people um, had to say. And then there's one thing that I would change about. There's a single word I would change. Oh, yeah. I would, yeah, what's that? <laughs> um, they use the term stump in this article. And I have to highlight this. I think the origins uh, maybe out of Holland. And so it could be an, a translation or interpretation thing. 
But please never refer to a patient's finger as a stump. Please just erase that from your memory. I almost did that on this podcast already. So what should I say instead? (laughs) So the, okay, OT to OT, call it their finger. It's their finger. Oh, it's still their finger. It's their finger. I am such a believer. The more I have learned uh, in trauma-informed care, which I'm working in trauma now, but just about 100%, apart from working with musicians, which I do uh, on the side, um, although maybe they have trauma too. That's a whole other topic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, The way that we frame things, the way that we address someone has so much power, and we are in the position of power as a therapist. So the term stump does not have any positive connotation to it. And so that's, it's in the prosthetics world, it was uh, kiboshed years ago. Uh, It is definitely something that we should also do. Um, The medical term, if you're documenting, would be residuum for singular, W, and residua for plural. So you can, you know, if I'm charting about somebody's finger, I may in my documentation say the distal end of the residua showed irritation on all four digits or something like that. Um, but when I'm speaking to the person, and granted the, the research article is for a medical audience, but um, I, I just always go for your finger, your thumb, your index finger now has this shape, you know, and I, I tried very much to frame it in the, this is what it is now, and it's still your index finger. So that's my one that's my one thing I would change just verbiage wise on the article if I if I had a crystal ball. Magical. Oh, and that's beautiful practical advice that um now I'll change even how I'm talking on this podcast. Um uh yeah, I'm excited for people to be able to hear that and think about that. Let me just let me just continue that thought really quick because every now and then you'll find that patients name their digit. This is a really strange thing to oh. me. Yeah, but you will I you will run into it. Yeah, so it's, you know it's their hand if they want to call it something. Uh, Fred, I mean, I've seen stories like that where yeah, yeah. people have a name, and I start to think about, oh, are they dissociating from their digit, right? Because I'm a therapist, and I start thinking that. But um, sometimes it's a strategy to be able to look at something traumatic and be a little more neutral about it. So it's not a place that we would correct them or change it. And if they allow us to call it Fred, we will call it Fred. But I would just encourage us to never try and name it or call it Stumpy, (laughs) which I have heard, right? Like, please, please. No, no, no. Even if it's like this, oftentimes people will joke. You'll experience some really interesting humor after an amputation and let them be the leader. That's all I'm saying in this context of like, yes, we joke. I am a terribly funny person. And if you're not laughing, then you're wrong, you know, but uh, also we let the patient lead and just always respect that they are going through. If it was a traumatic amputation, they are still processing trauma most likely. So Mm -hmm. give me the primer on what's changed in prosthetics in the past five years. Like you alluded to, the different designs that are out there. And this article seemed, um, everyone started with like the silicone prosthetic, like um, what's changing, what's out there? What does just the general OT population need to know about? Yeah. So I'm going to go very global on that response and just say the way that supplies and manufacturing and materials are made and transported is changing very rapidly. 
So we should, in the next two years, be seeking out an update on this topic. That's how fast this is moving. So there is that aspect of it. A couple interesting developments are where they are implanting devices into digits, actually into the bone, and attempting to connect the electronics of a device to the nerves of the body so that someone can regain the feeling of any sensation. That is upcoming, and there are challenges to having an implant in bone, so it's not perfected yet. But that's something to look out for. Thinking about when someone loses a digit, we have thousands and thousands of nerve endings in our fingertips, for example. And of course, with an amputation, they're just gone. So there's this huge loss of sensation that that person will go through. On top of that, we have our beautiful layer of skin that will make callus on the fingertip. And that is also lost. So the back of the fingers, for example, does not have the ability to callus the way that the finger pad or the palm does. So considering things like just a protection layer is not unusual. I would say almost every patient I interact with has sensitivity is how they would call it. So as things change, I'm looking towards a bigger emphasis on what the person needs and so that's that's how that ties in together. You know, they it's a need of sensation, but also a need for protection at the same time. Beyond that, also a global thought. Um, think back to the 40s and 50s, maybe, and how people who wore prosthetics were portrayed in our culture. And I think about Captain Hook being uh, of the right age to watch movies and uh, Disney movies, and how oftentimes villains were portrayed with prosthetics. And now if we come into the present time, we're seeing um, the Marvel character, the Winter Soldier, has a bionic arm, robotic, that enhances his ability, right? So we go from this portraying in culture of someone who um, has lost something and has something scary on their limb to portraying it as an enhancement to the body. So the other example I thought of um, is a video game example. I hope I don't alienate half of the people listening. Just come in with me, right? There's um, Tears of the Kingdom is a recent game that came out from Nintendo and the main character Link loses his arm but gains a new one that is ultra powerful and can do incredible things. So asking the question of what's changing in prosthetics, so there's this very logistical material change, but then there's a cultural change as well. And um, the way I tie it into therapy is sometimes I will meet someone and their expectation is that they're going to get a device and it's going to then give them function. So they are not ready to work on motion. They don't really want to deal with their scar. You know, it's painful. And they're not even thinking about getting strong because they have this hope that they'll, they'll get this enhanced body part. And that's a, if you ever interact with that, that's a very deep conversation to have because reality that we have now, in two years, I hope it's different. But the reality now is that it will reflect what you have. So... Any device, any design will just show what your own body can do. 
And if it's myoelectric, it's like putting a computer on the end of your device or your arm and your brain has to talk to it. So that's deep motor control and, and communication between the muscles and this new like computer at the end of your arm. So those are the, those are kind of the big themes that I see changing. And then, uh, and then I'm hoping for more research, obviously, in the next decade or so. Yeah. This article specifically said, like in past studies, that um, a finger prosthetic didn't help with hand strength. When I've looked at what like naked prosthetics offers, and it seems like very strong, very durable, there's some like motion with it. Um, does that help more than these old silicone ones? Like what's changing with like the strength and the movement? Has that advanced too? Oh my goodness. It's not even in the same class. I it's yeah. <laughs> so yes, yes, yes. You said it so well in your question. Um Number one, it articulates, which creates a more natural hand motion. One of my things I just nerd out about is when a patient will gesture with their new fingers. And it's like this natural reflect, or they'll touch their face with this prosthetic fingertip. It's just incredible to see how quickly it will integrate. The silicone restoration, or it, they're sometimes called passive functional device they're, they can be functional. They can help complete a grass pattern. They can be protective. They definitely have a place. Their primary strength is in cosmetic restoration. And I anticipate, I at least offer the person that discussion. Many times patients will say to me, oh, look, I, I have no issue with how this looks. I'm not concerned about photos um, or really anything uh, related to how my hand looks. And then I'll see, in fact, they'll get tattoos that say nine left and they'll have a missing digit. You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's just it's, it's a spectrum, right? Yeah. But then, but then I'll have other patients who say really uh, deep things to me like, I don't look at my wedding photos anymore because I had all my fingers. And I love those memories. But when I look at those photos, it reminds me that I went through this traumatic amputation. So... That barks, right? Doesn't it just scream at us? Oh my goodness. There is a place for the restoration of how that person looks to what they looked like before. Um, and I certainly think every person should have that as an option. But as it comes to working with our hands, we want something that moves or completes a grasp pattern. The thumb brings 40% function of the hand. So if it's thumb involved, we're absolutely trying to restore how they can pinch, how they can do dexterity, all those things, two-point pinch, all the grass patterns. So if the person is a candidate for a moving device, then I'm absolutely thinking about the naked prosthetics designs. They're called drivers, body-driven devices, right? And they should at least see it, be able to feel a demo if that situation is possible, um, and see if it would work for them. There are many times where I look at someone's hands and, uh, you know, there are a lot of really interesting advances in medicine right now where people are surviving from sepsis and having 10-digit amputations. Or they had, uh, I recently saw someone who had a UTI, went to sepsis, then had 10-digit involved case. Very complicated and sometimes also lower extremity. Uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever was one that I had recently, you know. So, 
when we're looking at these really complicated cases, sometimes we're not recommending intervention on every digit. And that's very much a functional space of, okay, what do you need to do and what can we restore to the most effective way? And I'm leading up to say that sometimes I'm talking about other designs too. Sometimes I'm thinking, oh man, maybe we should be looking at temporary 3D printed options that don't maybe have the durability, but can give function and are easily replaced. Mm -hmm. Maybe, especially with kids, that tends to be where my brain goes. Oh, yeah. Right? Maybe I'm thinking about the passive functional and I'm recommending that way. Um, If the person is very motivated and the right candidate, I'm absolutely thinking about the iDigits series, which is myoelectric, or the other brands that are out there. And sometimes if they need a static device or a a positionable device and they are not a candidate for NP, I might reference Point Designs, which is another brand that is in the market. So I think as a, I hope as therapists that we're curious and we're excited to see what every different style is and how it could match to a person. And maybe it's only five digits out of 10, you know, depending on what their situation is. Maybe it's all 10. We do that too. Mm -hmm. So interesting to hear just all the different designs, how many choices there are. Um, I have questions about the logistics of how we help get patients connected um, with that right design. But before we go there, I want to pause a little bit more on this, hearing the different cases that you're working with and hearing just all the different traumas that bring people to needing this. What have you learned about working with the emotions of this? Like trauma-informed care is its own like important consideration. And then it feels like some, there's something about trauma to the hand um, that is unique. Like what advice do you have for us for working with these cases? I'm thinking especially people who see these patients early on or a generalist who um, maybe only sees these kind of injuries every now and then. What do you have? Yeah, what advice do you have about just the emotions um, and help as a therapist helping people? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for asking this question. I just love this question because the um, the more experienced I get, the less I know. And also, yes. <laughs> also yes. the more important this topic has become to me. Um, so I'll begin with something from the article as kind of a uh, launching point. And the quote went something like, they only showed their naked hand to the medical professionals. And none of her friends had ever seen her without her prosthesis. So that tells us, in some cases, people are really protective. They're very vulnerable. And I always, you know, I always like to point out that when we meet patients, we are not meeting that person at their best They are going through a very difficult time in their life. So we're interacting with the person as they go through this journey from something and into a new version of the way they live. And, you know, the patient doesn't say, hi, my name is Joe and I'm feeling very vulnerable right now. Right? Like that's, I I don't know if I've ever experienced that, but what they'll do is they, they might be crass. They might be late. They might um, 
never read a single piece of paper you give them, right? And they might talk back, they might be flat, they might not respond to what you say. Uh, They might even argue with your front desk over stupid things that you're like, why is this person doing this? So I would say that when, for me now, I've learned that those are yellow flags for me to go, oh, oh, wait a minute. This person is not in their intellectual brain. They know we're trying to help them. They're not acting that way. They're working out of their trauma brain or whatever you like to label it as. So I think the first step is acknowledging that the person went through something very traumatic. And I love to begin with the question of what brought you here? So please steal my words and use them to your strength. <laughs> that is just my opening uh, dialogue to try and be non-judgmental and just leave it very wide open. And if the person tells me I, um, I came in my truck, <laughs> then I'm like, oh, okay, I need to, <laughs> I need to like narrow this on in and be like, oh, you know, why are you here? Especially in the context of uh, prosthesis. Why Why are you considering this? You know, what, what brought you here? Sometimes uh, we're working with people who have congenital limb difference. And so I would absolutely never insult them and call it a residuum, right? There is nothing residual about the way their hand developed. Their dexterity and compensation and adaptation is incredible. So again, start with that open, wide open door of what what happened? What brought you here? Tell me your story. You will find that many people never have a chance to tell their full story. So as therapists, PT or OT, I think we spend enough time to let people do that. That would be my starting point. Then there is another side of the coin that if we stay in the trauma story, it can be a repeated trauma for the person. And I think we all understand that, right? Like sometimes you just get tired of talking about something that happened, Right. And to this person, it might be compounded over a decade at this point. So I take the conversation when I can into what do you want to do? What is the hope? What is the goal? What paints the picture for me of what you'd like this to do? And so that would be how I start to facilitate that early phase I always, I love, I didn't make this up. I learned this from someone else, but uh, I don't ever go up to someone and say, you know, you could have a prosthetic on that. (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, it's like saying, hey, I know a great hairstylist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, or like, no, no, no. Please don't do that. Um, But um, it does make me think about that sometimes where I'm like, okay, no, no, they got to be the driver. I'm uh, I'm here to help when they are ready, and if they want to talk about what they can do, what they don't do, you know, that's that's how that's got to go. But what you will find is that I'm going to say 50% of the people I interact with have seen designs online before they come to me. So they are not a blank canvas. They have a preconception of what they want, how it's going to work, and they really just want to know how fast they can get it. So as therapists, I think we have to give very I my style I like to be very realistic. I don't want you to think you're going to get this in 2 days like Amazon shipping, okay? This is a quite a process to go through the sizing, the measurement, and then an actual design takes weeks. 
and then it has to be shipped to your location. So even if someone said, look, I want this now, let alone insurance authorization, right? How long does that take? So there's a time factor. That being said, for the generalists in the crowd and uh, and hand therapists too, there's so much to be done in not only function, but just basic healing, right? Get the volume under control so that it's not going up and down and up and down. Get the scar tissue to be flexible so it can tolerate load when we put something external on it. Thinking about, you know, your basic function. How is this person cooking? How are they doing? You know, do they have precautions that you have to follow? Are they putting on lower extremity prostheses? How are they doing that? If they, you know, don't have 10 digits. I mean, there are a lot of things for us to explore in preparation for prosthetic intervention. And I always recommend when I meet a therapist with a patient beforehand, you got to have at least one visit with them with that device. Sometimes people need weeks of therapy to do actual training. Don't get me wrong. Some people don't hardly need anything. They put it on and they go. And I just encourage people to, you know, coach the patient, tell your doctor to send you back to me. We're not direct access yet. Maybe someday, I don't know. But, you know, uh, be sure that you have a connection with a therapist so that if you need help, you can get help. I'm glad you're... um are stopping me from this, but now like getting a peek into this world, I'm like, I want to walk out my door and tell everyone I see that they could benefit from a prosthetic if they're missing part of their finger. Yeah. Who, who are the really good candidates for these finger or who isn't might be the best. Like, um, and I'm thinking especially, like, for our acute care therapists and our outpatient therapists, like, who do you want us to plant the seeds to that this might be a helpful trajectory for them? Oh, um, absolutely. Does it have to be, what if it's a so super old amputation or, um, I don't know, yeah, who should we be yeah. planting the seeds for even if we're not the hand therapist? Yeah. Um, I would say that everyone deserves the chance to think about it. So that's my starting point of there are no like fast rules. You can, you can't. Everyone should have the choice to at least consider it and think about how it might help them or not be a good fit. Many people never do intervention. They adapt very well. Um, and there's a beautiful thing about that, right? Like um, if you're out deep sea fishing, and that whale, I don't know, takes, I don't fish if you can't tell, but anyway, <laughs> take the device off your hand into the deep ocean, you got to be able to get back to shore. So there, we do have to adapt without something. That is a real thing. It's a very okay? common occurrence. So It is. No, I mean, <laughs> it came from somewhere. Yeah. So. Um, but that being said, I think every recent traumatic amputation should absolutely have it in the discussion. And by recent, that's actually like within the last year. Um, but at the same time, you know, this ties into maybe a later topic we're going to talk about, but when you can't use one hand to its full potential, shock of all shock, the world continues and you must still interact with it. And that means the unaffected side will take over. 
and do as much as it possibly can. And that just logically makes sense that the risk of an overuse injury is extraordinarily high. So even I've seen cases where it happened 20 years ago and it was a single digit and they get a device and suddenly the pain from their traumatic arthritis goes down within days, right? And the other hand stops working so hard and eventually they start to reduce their tennis elbow symptoms, which takes time. I'm not saying that a device can cure tennis elbow. Okay, nobody quote me on that. But I am saying that it can absolutely redistribute the activity and force between the two hands in our two-handed world. And that's good for the body. The body likes that. So it is case by case. I think if the person has reached a point where they're like, look, I love telling my story of how this happened and what happened. And this is part of my identity. I'm this person. I have this presentation then I certainly don't go say, hey, look, we got new materials and they're super strong now. Do you want to check them out? Yeah. (laughs) Like that's, you know, I follow their pace. Um, But if they are new and they need to get back to work and they type and I mean, just I love being a hand therapist because it's like we interact with the world through our hands. So you have this whole range of like we hold hands with our loved ones. You think about caring for a toddler, you think about training your dogs, you know, there's just this huge spectrum of life that we do through our hands. So again, I'm pulling from this article that there's this factor of returning to life the way it was before the injury. And I think that applies just about to everything that we deal with as therapists, right? Whether they're Having something very routine like a knee replacement and we're doing rehab in the hospital, they want to return to life, right? Um, So when somebody has goals like that, or I get to work with musicians, very, very often things merge in my world. So having experience as a musician and working for NP, I get to work with musicians who want to go back to playing an instrument. Uh, They're just prime candidates to look at this and talk through it and see what the best fit is um, and then do battle with insurance. Be prepared. Um, But that's how I I guess that's a long answer to say how I would introduce the topic to someone. Mm -hmm. If I'm an outpatient therapist and someone comes to me because they have overuse of their elbow. And I'm like, oh, actually the problem is your amputation on your other side and you might benefit from a prosthetic to balance your load. Do I get that person to a hand therapist? Do I connect them cur- like directly with a prosthetic company or do I go to their doctor first? Like just the logistics of like, how do I get them there what in that question. scenario? Yeah, what a good question. So heal their tennis elbow first. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, no, I mean, we, you know, we start treatment if that's in your scope and you are comfortable treating an overuse injury, start start that process because overuse injuries take so long to heal. They take a long time to build, but then they take a long time to heal. Um, but then logistically, I think, so let's say you have the conversation with them and you're like, hey, you know, check this out, look online, maybe join. There are some really amazing Facebook groups that have community of people. And I think 
there is no more powerful intervention than a peer mentor. I recently spoke about resiliency and I was reminded about this powerful thing of community and mentorship and having someone who you identify with who got better. There's it's just so powerful. So if you can facilitate a peer mentor in your clinic or in the hospital, you start that program. Be the OT that starts a peer mentorship program, please, because it helps people of in any diagnosis group, you know, whether it's cancer rehab or the one we're talking about or others. Then, so let's say the person's interested, right? And they're like, hey, you know, I think that I want to learn about that. My advice would be to start by finding a prosthetist. And the reason is that it is a lifelong relationship with a prosthetist if you do go through this process. And so you want to like the clinic. They're always, they're usually well run, but you want to be connected with someone that you want to follow up with, that you feel good about how they do things, that you have a connection with, and hopefully that they have experience with upper extremity prosthetics, which is not always the case. Some people, just like in our field, they have expertise in other areas. You can also usually meet them at no cost. Their particular clinic setup is very different from a therapy setup. So it's more common for them to just meet someone and to talk about what they do. Then, you know, in our therapy world, you have to have usually a referral, uh, unless you're straight cash pay or doing some kooky stuff. Um, but I might be one of those people doing coaching and things like that. But uh, our system is very time-based and uh, number of visits and all that. Their system is not. So start finding a prosthetist. And what that will do, if you can't find a prosthetist, please contact Naked Prosthetics because they have a network of people who have worked with their designs. So, But so do, I'm sure, the other vendors and other um, manufacturers. So that's another avenue. Mm-hmm. The prosthetist will usually have a connection with a physician physiatrist, maybe even a hand surgeon, it just depends. But someone who they have worked with in the past, who would be a good consultant to talk about the whole idea with. Most of the time, well, it's my belief anyway, that if you went to a GP, a general person, they may have never heard of the options that are present. So you want to find Mm -hmm. someone, most hand surgeons are very up to date on this topic. But um, that's what I would start with is get a good prosthetist connection, then find your surgeon and start going through the evaluation process. Are you a candidate? That's the term that they use. Oftentimes, they'll talk about things like, you know, uh, this is an ideal candidate for something or a non-ideal candidate. And just for everybody listening, that doesn't mean maybe how we would use those words, If someone says it's an ideal candidate, then it's like, this physics was made for this person and we're not going to have to adjust very much. And then I want you all to think about how different our hands are person to person. Many times there will be a presentation that needs substantial adjustment to the person. Um, So that's a part of the process, very normal. And then I think... Um, just remember the insurance dynamic of how much is it going to cost the person. I I can't predict. Certainly nationwide, it's different. It varies on insurance plans. Um, but again, it's that person's choice. I think they should have the choice to see what's available um, and then 
hopefully follow up with a therapist afterwards. So again, if you know someone, um, you can be obviously a CHT or someone working in hands or just someone with even neurological experience, expertise, I think transitions very well into uh, post-intervention training. If someone makes it through this big, long process, gets their prosthetic, what's our role as OTs in helping them adjust, whether you're their hand therapist or you're, um, I guess, again, a generalist who's just seen them after? What's the most important thing that we can do? All right. So there's the medical urgent thing that I have to tell you. And that is, of course, okay, what's their skin? Come on, like, right, we're putting contact on something. It might be a little moist. Like, is their skin tolerating it? Um, They may have diminished sensation, so they might not know. So then I'd be teaching them to do uh, skin checks. Oh, and I just reminded myself, I guess something else we OTs are really great about is what's their cognitive level. So, you know, if this person is... It, it doesn't mean they're a candidate or a non-candidate. It just means how much support are they going to need. If they're having um, gaps in memory, which could happen with trauma, that's not weird, right? It could also happen with pain medicine. Uh, but that would be a factor in how we interact with them. Are we giving them extra reminders? Are we seeing them more frequently? Are we inviting the caregiver to come to the visit and demanding that they come because you're worried about that, you know? But back to your question as far as what what do we do? So there's this first early medical situation where you're like, okay, um, it fits well, and they don't have pain when they wear it. Um, and of course, they can don and doff it, which is such a basic thing that, you know, uh, but you got to make sure, especially think 10-digit situation, how are they putting it on? Are they overusing their teeth? How can we modify this? Um, so there's that basic level. But then there's this beautiful phase of integrating it into use. So you'll find with every design that there's a different grasp radius that they have in their the physics of those joints that they make, right? So we start to evaluate, okay, what's their occupation or what's the occupation and how does this particular motion do with it? When I've run this in a clinic, and again, I'm virtualed in, so I'm often bossing somebody around like, hey, go get this, go get this, go get this, right? Uh, A couple mistakes that I see frequently are um, changing grasp size perpetually. So like they're holding a pen, then they're holding a stapler, then they're typing, then they're like ping pong. And I'm like, whoa, slow down. Like, let's pick... Let's pick dexterity and get some good motor practice with some dexterity, small, finite, till you're sick of it. You know, like 10 minutes of solid dexterity, you're going to be like, okay, the therapy's cool, but what's the next thing, you know? Then I might say, okay, let's work on medium grasp or large grasp and be feeding them that type of task. And then, of course, we know that repetition at home is just so critical, right? So as you're watching them, you're coaching them, hey, how are you going to do this at home? How are you going to re- replicate what we're doing here at home? And then you let them drive a little bit and they might surprise you and be like, you know, I love to do cross stitch. And you're going to be like, hey, <laughs> dexterity done, you know, or um, oftentimes um, they might just be really trying to work. And then you're thinking deeply about typing. A lot of people I work with want to type quickly. So how did we learn how to type, right? When we were 
first learning, we did those typing practice sessions and gradually increased our speed. So that's just a basic way. You certainly don't need to do that in the clinic, but they would follow up at home or even at work if that's appropriate for what they're doing. Um, and of course, I got to plug ergonomics, right? Because so we're doing person task and the stuff around them. So thinking ergonomically, how is their office set up? Do they need a split keyboard because it fits the devices better? Do they need, um, obviously, you could do some voice to text if that was really speed was an issue. I would introduce that idea right away and say, okay, you know, in a year's time, you're going to be typing like you used to, but you got to you gotta work between now and then. So how can we divide up the work kind of thing? So those are some practical ideas. Um, of course, I love my colleagues who sometimes are like, just be an OT, just be an OT. But um, having been a new therapist, um, you know, and mentored a few people now, um, we got to get practical. Like, what does that actually mean? And it it's putting that silly class called activity analysis into practice, which it, I was the student that absolutely was annoyed about that class. Just for the <laughs> and I will tell on myself. <laughs> I was like, what are we doing? Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, you know, we have this variety of human we interact with. So how about changing diapers? Like, let's get real with people. Are you cooking? Do we need to f- do some kind of meal prep setup and watch them do it with the device on? Is it better without? That happens sometimes where I'm like, you know what? You're just a lot faster doing this task without a device. And I don't see any reason to force it if you're better, you know, like just use this on a different thing. So also I'm here to help. So please, <laughs> please do. Um, and and there is a network of people who work in prosthetics. So I don't, I often don't have the answer. I will be the first to tell you I am, I'm not the expert. I There are other people who know so many things, but if I can connect you as well, I, I most certainly will. Everything about this conversation is just so exciting to me. Like, I know 10 people who would benefit from this. Like, I see so well how our OT skill set fits here. I love that there's OTs like you that specialize in this area. But tell me about the challenges. What, or what's the main challenge you see in the industry right now? Like, what do we need to work on? Um, and where do we need to go? Yeah. Um, the biggest demon is the insurance system. And I say that with kind of a grain of salt because I think many people would not get care if they didn't have insurance. So we need it. Mm-hmm. But, and, um, I hear stories all the time about how their request for authorization was denied. And when it's looked at closer, the note from the insurance company will say, my electric devices are experimental. And you go, we're asking for a silicone restoration. This is not my electric, <laughs> right? Wow. So so I, I know as a therapist, the first time I interacted with that, I was shocked. I was like, how is it possible that my beautiful note got rejected? Yeah. And, and then I investigated and I'm like, they didn't even read it. They didn't even yeah. open it. Yeah, they didn't. <laughs> You know, so don't take it personally. It's and don't let the patient take it personally. I man, talk about secondary trauma for everybody. Like my insurance says I don't need it, but you say I need it. It's like, oh man, why are we even having this conversation? So, you know, I sure hope that 
in five to 10 years. That's a conversation of the past. But as it is now, do prepare to go through several rounds, at least one challenge on the application through insurance. Uh, if, as a therapist, if you're comfortable writing letters of medical necessity, I encourage you to do so. I know that in the past I have done that and it's been effective, but it varied on the insurance. Some insurances, again, they don't even open if it's from a therapist and they need it from a physician. Um, and I, I have a note to remind me would just also be every now and then I would call them old school. I hope I don't get in trouble for that. But some therapists will decide for the patient. Some surgeons decide for the patient that they don't need it. Um, I've talked to hand clinics, which shall remain nameless, that have just said, oh, no, they, they adapt. They don't need anything. And they don't even aren't even comfortable bringing it up. So I'd encourage us to as the world changes to also evolve with it and say, oh, you know, maybe the changes in these options are worth considering. And that can be a challenge to us as well, right? We all have to keep growing and adapting and uh, staying connected with changes. So those are my two big ones. We've talked about so many things today. I love how practical it's been. It's been so eye-opening for me. I pride myself on staying out like up to date. And I feel like I was back in the 1960s on this topic. Like, so yeah, this has just been so fun to hear about all this. Of all the, we've talked about so many things. What's the final closing thought you want to leave us with today? I have two. I'm a rule breaker. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Thoughts. (laughs) Right. So the first one is about our topic. And it is that Every person has their own definition of what makes them feel whole and let them drive on that definition. There is a direction that will see people go where the device they get becomes embodied is the term. So it's beyond adoption. So yes, they adopt it, but it becomes a part of their person. And so keep an eye out for that process And know that you're winning when you start to see that because the person is embodying the change. Even if they had no device on, as they embody their own hand, they're progressing through their journey, right? And then my my second thought is for us, for us therapists. And I mentioned secondary trauma already, and I just encourage all of us to acknowledge the incredibly challenging work that we do as a therapist in any setting. They, they have different challenges. And I know for myself, I mean, I was being haunted by patient cases at one point in my career. I would be like walking the dog thinking about how I was going to solve a problem for someone, you know. And uh, building, for me, building community was absolutely critical. So this program that you run, I think is just beautiful. I think people need to utilize it. They need to build in-person and virtual, whatever your style is, community to have that support to your resilience. Um, And, you know, there are many strategies to support resilience, but I just have to include that thought so that we can help other people. That's what I have to keep reminding myself of because I'm a good, hardworking, right, hand therapist (laughs) of like, nope, it's important that I stay clear so that I can help the next person who I might be interacting with. Um, And then uh, just 
connect on LinkedIn. I want to invite everybody listening. If there's if you are interested in anything that we talked about, I'm more than happy to discuss more. Um, and I I'm excited to be a part of this group. So, hmm. well, Haley, this has just been such a great hour. Um, you took a topic that to me I like when I first looked at it, it felt like very techy and very specific, and you made it feel so holistic and so OT. So thank you so much for this discussion and the work you're doing. And um, it's definitely been a pleasure. Oh, this is such high praise. Thank you very much. And it's uh, absolutely been an honor to be here. Wow, I just love this conversation on so many levels. I feel so much more oriented to the world of prosthetics, but I love how even in this specialty niche, we got to hear Haley's quintessential OT approach, starting with a client's story, then letting them drive what happens next in her care. For members of the OT Potential Club, Haley is sharing an example of a note of medical necessity for you to review. And also, if you are an OT who works with hands, I encourage you to tag yourself as such on our OT directory so clients and fellow therapists can find you. And as always, I really want to hear what your thoughts are. If you are a casual listener of the podcast, let us know your thoughts by giving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to or comment on our YouTube video. But the best place to really discuss the implications of all this is in the OT Potential Club. We'll have all the mentioned resources organized there for you. And I'll be watching for your comments in our forum. If you are interested in earning a CEU certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. And once you are in there, you can take a five question test. And when you pass, we will generate a certificate for your time today. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I hope this podcast helps keep you informed and inspired as an OT professional. Take care and we'll talk next time.